One of the stories that's been reported in the last few weeks is that during his presidency, George W. Bush picked up a book about the 1918 pandemic and reading the book absolutely shook him. Uh, he became so rattled that he ordered his staff to put into motion protections against what could be a, a global pandemic. Um, and I picked up the book that he read um, out of curiosity recently, and John Barry begins the book by talking about how a virus works. And he said this, um, a virus does four things at the start. It attaches to a cell, and then after attaching to the cell, it begins to attack the cell. And it attacks the cell, and, and this period of attack can last up to 10 hours, but it attacks the cell so thoroughly that at the end of the attack, it causes the cell to burst. And then when the cell bursts, it releases somewhere between 100,000 to a million viruses into the body. And this release is what he calls the mutant swarm, the swarm. And this picture of a swarm is something that he comes back to, the author comes back to, to explain um, what the experience of a pandemic feels like, right? He talks about how um, global institutions and national institutions and local municipalities all become swarmed and all become overwhelmed at the reality of being able to treat this global pandemic. And I started thinking to myself, man, that is a good metaphor perhaps for us about what it feels like, what life feels like for us in these times. It feels like there's a swarm, right? It feels like we're constantly overwhelmed by um, news from a distance and also news from up close as we hear people we care about become severely affected by this virus. We hear people affected because family members are getting sick and we hear how people are affected because of job loss and economic uncertainty. We feel like there's a swarm of negative news and opposition. And the question for us is how do we stay rooted in a season when we're facing this overwhelming swarm? And I think Psalm 27 gives us two things um, that can be a source of comfort for us and a source of strength as we try to make our way through this difficult season. I think Psalm 27 gives us something to do and something to pursue. Something to do and something to pursue. And if we follow along with the psalmist, I think he shows us, the psalmist shows us how we overcome the swarm. All right. So something to do and then something to pursue. So first, something to do. In verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 27, it reads like this. Though an army, oh, 2 and 3, let's start here. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. What you find out from the jump of this psalm uh, from the very beginning, um, the psalmist lists all the oppositional forces that are causing the psalmist to feel overwhelmed. And details war and army and evildoers who are trying to attack and adversaries coming all at once, right? And the principle here is that as people of faith in the one true God, we would be mistaken to just brush over suffering. That's not what we do. That's not what we're about. And that's not the way forward. Um, 
the church has has this practice that it is um, that that it is used in times of difficulty, right? Called lament, and in lament, what we say is we look out into the world and we say that is not the way as God created it to be. That's not the way that things are supposed to be. That's not the way when he when he comes back and returns, because we 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 say this lament because we after cataloging the things that we're experiencing um these op this lament gives us the space to say um, we're facing evildoers and assailants we're facing opposition on all sides we're facing the breakdown of the systems that were supposed to protect us um, it even the psalmist even goes as far in verse 10 as saying for my father and my mother have forsaken me. Right? It's the sense that when a swarm comes at us and the institutions that were supposed to protect us leave us to fend for ourselves, we feel like we've been abandoned. And often in difficult times, it can, it can feel like um, the ones that we depend on to protect us are the first to let us go and then we take our negative experience about what others have done for us and the way that institutions have failed us and then we project that onto God and we say, God, you must have abandoned me in this season. You, you must have abandoned me. But what the psalmist teaches us is the difference between um, a righteous complaint and an unrighteous complaint. The unrighteous complaint complains about God, but what the psalmist does is he complains to God. Complains to God about the catalog of things that he's experiencing. Um, where do we, we see this even more clearly? We see this as we look at um, comparable texts, right? So this is Hebrew poetry. This is the Israelites writing and, and praying to their God. When you look at comparable texts, of, of the Egyptians and Babylonians who also lamented things, who also complained about things, what you find is that um, scholars have, have detailed that the difference is not so much in the form, but in the content, right? There's the common form of the lament, but the content is different. In Babylonian laments, what you find is that the author is formulaic and transactional when it comes to how they approach their God. Um, their aim is manipulation of their God to be able to get the things that they want out of him. But what you find when you read the psalmist is that there's a vulnerability in, in the psalmist approach. It's almost as though the invitation that, that God has given the psalmist is to come not for a transaction, but for conversation. And if you want to see your faith built up in this season, and if you want to look at this faith and see your heart explode, with the reality that you have not been abandoned, then take out a notebook and just writing and start writing to God. Start detailing the hard things, the impossible things, the overwhelming things. Um, and when possible, would you end with, with statements of faith that you find um, echoed and exemplified in the Psalms? But, but if all you can say right now is things are incredibly difficult for me, Lord, won't you see that as not an act of weak faith, but of deep faith, right? Because a weak faith would not even go to God at all when things are difficult. Um, but what you find in an invitation in the Psalms is for God's people to come to him and say, this 
this, 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 these, all these things are what I'm facing right now. And I know that you won't abandon me, but if I feel so alone in this moment. And what they hope for is that he will vindicate them. And what you find is that he does. He will vindicate. Um, and so the place where we begin is we lament. We lament, we name, we name with specificity and detail the hard things that we're experiencing. But the psalm goes further than that in verse four, and it gives us something to pursue. And what is that? Um, the psalmist writes, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist urges here by, by their example to pursue a beauty that does not abandon. Now in the Old Testament, the temple was this landmark, right? It was a landmark that it was a physical embodiment of God's invisible presence. Um, it was this holy place where, where all of um, the Israelites' hope laid on the fact that their God resided in the temple. And it was the same presence of God that Moses met um, in Exodus 34, right? Where um, the Lord has to protect Moses from his presence because the presence of God um, is so extravagant and potent that it could kill Moses. So it protects against him. But, but later on in the Israelite story, what you find is that God resides in the temple and his presence resides there. And it's this beauty, this loveliness that the psalmist talks about. Centuries later, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he says things like, um, destroy the temple in three days and I will raise it up. Or destroy the temple and I will raise it up in three days. And people scoff at him and they say, don't you know how long it took to build this thing? And John, who's commentating and retelling the story, says um, Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Um, and what you find is that the large claim that Jesus was making um, was that he is the full embodiment of God's character and loveliness and beauty that the Israelites had been waiting for. That he is the fullness of that. So when you read stories in the New Testament about Jesus healing the sick and caring for those on the margins and speaking against the religious authorities that embodied every form of hypocrisy. What you find in those stories is you find the fullness of God's character embodied in Jesus. Um, and what the psalmist knew is that a glimpse of this beauty, this beauty of God, a glimpse of that beauty could anchor and provide stability in times of instability. So as you enlarge and as your vision of Jesus increases, you find that you find your, yourself stable in the times of instability. Um, because in, in Jesus, we see the beauty of God's character. But not only in Jesus do we see the beauty of God's character, in Jesus we also see the beauty of God's story. And the beauty of God's story, what do I mean by that? Um, in order to cope with the anxiety of these times, 
my wife has been watching dystopian films. And um, last week, the film was I Am Legend, right? Will Smith, uh, peak Will Smith, right? Um, and that was, that was um, her big takeaway. It was like, you know, peak Will Smith is undefeatedly handsome. Um, but in this movie, Will Smith plays an, an army virologist. And um, what happens is there's a mega virus that wipes out billions of people across the world. And um, Will Smith exists in New York City, in a dystopian New York City, trying to find a serum that cures the virus. Not only is he trying to find a serum that cures the virus, he's trying to stay alive um, while facing the attacks of a zombie horde, right? There's a swarm of zombies that threaten his life. And at the close of the film, Will Smith is standing, um, standing with um, a mother and a son um, who he meets along the way and the three of them are all, all that they've seen of the whole of humanity and they're facing this enemy horde. And what Will Smith does at this end of this film, here's a spoiler, is he takes the serum that could provide the cure. He gives it to this mother and son and he sends them off and he takes on the horde himself. And there is this intrinsic beauty in the sacrifice of someone who's willing to take on the horde so that others could go free. And what you realize that that story is our story, right? The beauty and the intrinsic beauty of that story of one who takes on the punishment of the horde so that others could go free is what we find in what Jesus does on the cross. What we find is that this story of sacrifice and healing and reversal embodies um, this sense that our God is willing to do anything so that we will not feel abandoned. That even as the world falls, seemingly falls apart, that there is one who has take on, taken on the punishment, the worst punishment that the world could give, so that those who trust in him could go free and find the healing that they long for. Um, this passage in Psalm 27 talks about seeking a beauty that does not abandon. It was the story of the Israelites, mistake after mistake. Yahweh was faithful to them. He was faithful even when they were faithless and stubborn. It's a God who does not abandon them. The reason that they can trust to speak and converse with this God, sharing the intimate vulnerabilities is because they had seen him faithful. They'd seen that he, he was one that wasn't going to abandon them. And so how do we take this beauty in? How, does it, how do we take it in and so that it, it transforms us? Um, we have to see that this beauty, um, we have to see that this beauty um, is taking in as we see God's, and we seek God's face. As we seek God's face. Where do we see this? Um, verses 7, 8, and 9 says this, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Um, this passage talks about pursuing this beauty Right, this beauty of God with reckless abandon. So hear that. So 
Um, we pursue a God who promises not to abandon us, but we sue him with, pursue him with rec reckless abandon. Um, this, this psalmist has made themselves vulnerable to God and they're saying, I have sought you. Would you show yourself to me? And we've made this distinction clarification before. I've said this before at, at the church, but um, one of the, the most helpful things I've ever heard said was often we always, we, we're, we're so prone to only seeking God's hands um, when we ought to also be seeking his face. What they meant by that was in the Old Testament, the hands were another way of talking about God's power and God's intervention. Usually the human mistake and the temptation is to leverage God's power for, human, for, for our own ends. Um, that's what we see over and over again as the problem that um, the Israelites face is that they're constantly trying to use God's power for their own ends. But what we see here is that what God is interested in, in is that we know him and we seek his face and we see that he is interested in fellowship and conversation and union with us. That he is not a God to be manipulated and used. And that we're not to treat him in a transactional form. But he wants to walk with us. And he gives us his spirit so that we would know in difficult seasons that we are not alone. And we focus, we focus, we focus on seeking his face. And we do that by pursuing him and speaking to him and detailing the difficulty of our days to him. And when we do that, what we'll find is that our faith will grow. And it, it'll grow not perhaps in a you know, in a linear way, not one prayer for one unit of growth, but like a plant, um, um, it'll grow in a way that's organic. Um, there'll be seasons of accelerated growth and other seasons where it feels like there's not much that's growing at all, um, but it's vibrant and it's living. And that's the promise is as we seek his face, we'll look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And our hope is that he is our stability in times of instability, that he is our light in times of darkness. Our hope is that he has not abandoned us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would come to know your face, that we would grow, grow, in this season in an awareness of who you are and what you've done for us and the ways that you've invited us to converse with you. So would we lay it out to you and before you? In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.